This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let's get into the provincial election and uh, and what happened last night. Uh, as we know, a massive majority government and uh, not too many surprises, but a few here in the Hamilton area. Uh, joining us to dissect it is uh, Tom Cooper, director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Good to see you, Thomas. Good morning, Bill. And Laura Babcock, president of Power Group who uh, is uh, doing the coffee thing today. (laughs) I did a coffee run. We all need it. But I have to say... You were doing cable. I was here. And uh, it's a long night. It is a long night. And I have to say thank you for the Trump joke, because not only did it wake us up, but Tom's been crying about the election. So (laughs) (laughs) he needed a laugh. Anyway, that's... It's only 1,300 days until 2022. (laughs) But the conservatives, when they win, usually get two terms. So you got to wait to 26. Well, and well, let's talk Sorry. about that. Let's let's <laughs> just, about the implications of this. Uh, I I think for most part, I think we anticipated that this was going to be a PC victory. I I know there was some talk about well, they're close in the polls, but when you looked at seat distribution, Laura, I mean, it was not going to be that close. I mean, the nine oh five is where you win this thing, and that's where they were strong. Yeah, for sure. People who were really looking at the seat distribution weren't buying the whole horse race argument. I have to say, in one way, the fact that they won the popular vote and the seats, it's it's a clear majority. Unlike what we saw in the U.S. Uh, to bring it back around to Trump, where you know Hillary had the popular, Trump had the electoral college, and there was always this sense of oh, we were cheated. So I'm glad that it's definitive, at least for the sake of people moving forward. But really, what was voted on? There wasn't really a platform. He wasn't a popular leader. I think people voted for the bench strength, the experience, the NDP still a little too unknown, and the fact that they had some issues with their candidates, I think, hurt them in the last week. So really, this has to be about the team. It has to be about, are we going to see Doug Ford, the person we remember from the Ford drama in Toronto, or are we going to see a Doug Ford who is more nuanced, who is more collaborative, who listens to some of the adults on his on his cabinet bench. That was one of the overriding things through the campaign and I know anybody who ever asked uh, Mr. Ford, "Hey, where you know, where are you going to get the money?" I uh, was chastised, you know, how can you do this? Yeah. But David Aiken was on a show last night uh, from Global TV and uh, and Richard Brennan who's covered politics uh, for God knows how long. Between the two of them there's about 70 years of experience there. And both of them told me last night in all their years of doing that, they have never seen a campaign with so little information. I, I, I mean, the the word platform may not resonate with a lot of people, but no information. But the uh, the reality, Tom, they bought it. It was vacuous. It was a vacuous campaign. It was a campaign devoid of issues, um, which is really disappointing because there were some really important policies on the table in this election, from uh, universal pharmacare to dental care mm-hmm. to child care. Um, unfortunately... Ontarians decided to go with a bit of a simpler solution Um, and uh, certainly all the more power to them for that. Uh, I think after 15 years of the Liberal government, they wanted they wanted a change. Um, However, uh, I I think it's going to be very difficult to uh, oppose this government, uh, given the lack of platform they presented in the election. Um, so they have carte blanche to do what they want to do. 1990, uh, when Bob Ray and the NDP got elected, uh, there was a very similar uh, attitude that was going on. Uh, they were sick and tired of David Peterson. They didn't like his arrogance. They didn't like where the government was going. The economy was starting to tank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recession everybody blames Bob Ray for actually started about a year and a half before that election. And and I, I heard that on this program, Laura. Everybody said, well, I'm going to give them a chance. I'm just so sick and tired of the conservatives and the liberals. Let's just vote for these guys. And then all of a sudden, the NDP gained power. They cut the funding for the expressway. They got this. And he said, whoa, whoa, what are they doing? You didn't read it, did you? You were just so angry. You wanted to get rid of Peterson. And I think that was the overriding thing in this election. They just wanted Kathleen Wynne out of there. 
Yeah, over 80% of people said that they did. And so it was really about, well, what's going to be the choice? And there's an expression, liberals fall in love, conservatives fall in line. So there was going to be a strong conservative turnout anyway, even if they didn't want Doug Ford. And a lot of people wish, let's say, Christine Elliott, the safer choice, had been put in there. Uh, But they were going to come out. And so what Andrea had to do was to say, you can trust NDP in leadership. You can trust us to govern. And NDP has always been sort of the moral protest vote on so many different ways. And so to actually think that they could control the province, I think, for a lot of people, without the bench strength, that was just too much of a risk, even though they really it, liked it. It was the team. Yeah, they did uh, have... Uh, uh, and Andrea I Horvath wish, always scores well with likability, but when you saw yep. some of the stories about some of the other members of the team, rightly or wrongly, those stories defined the rest of the team. They did. And so Andrea made a choice to sort of not jettison them out like we saw Ford do with Tanya. Uh, And so she made that choice and she still got 20 seats and people are mocking her a little bit this morning that her big, you know, opposition party, they think that, you know, she was acting like she won last night when she didn't, but she still doubled her party's fortunes. She ran, I think, the best campaign in terms of policy. There was meat on the plate. There was sizzle in terms of the messaging consistency. She was fantastic in the debates. So I think that this is a new NDP party this morning. I think that they can, if they show up, uh, really give Ford and his cabinet a run for their money, they can be excellent in opposition, and hopefully they can nuance and moderate some of these platforms that people are worried about. But I just have to say, my biggest single concern coming out of last night, and this is selfish, I'm not partisan, so this is, comes down to Hamilton for me, and that is the fate of the LRT. Yep. I mean, that is huge. And and I had the opportunity to talk to both Marie Butriani last night and Brad Clark, former cabinet ministers, about how they saw it playing out, and they had very different viewpoints on it, which tells me that we better Better buckle up, Hamilton. Well, uh, as uh, I got a tweet from one guy last night who was a political observer in this community, uh, and when they saw the results and the way things were shaping up, he he tweeted me and he said, uh, Mayor Eisenberger better start sending flowers to Donna Skelly because that's a bridge they better build again. Well, he was nice because I trolled the, the mayor. <laughs> when the mayor did the congratulations yeah. tweet, I said, maybe you'll get to work with Minister Kelly in the transportation portfolio. In other words, uh, and I just should say, Marie Butriani's advice was, if the city, if, if Doug Ford's going for $6 billion efficiencies without cutting jobs, as he's promised, that's one thing he said clearly, then a billion dollars is on the table here in Hamilton. Yeah. And you've already got Donna Skelly, who will be our voice at Queen's Park, saying that that money could be spent differently. Marie Butriani said, if the cabinet sees that our city, our council, is wishy-washy and not even on the same page, that money will be easier to pull away. Brad Clark thinks from an infrastructure point of view and from, you know, the bureaucracy at Queen's Park will try to keep this going because of all the work that's been put into it. I think that's optimistic with the politics. When you got a $6 billion promise, and that's one of the things that Ford was adamant about, Mm -hmm. how tempting is it, Tom, for him to say, well, there's one-sixth of it right there? Exactly. And and people I've been talking to are, are really concerned and they remember the days of Mike Harris and, and that should go for municipal governments as well and you'll, you'll recall oh, yeah. from your days on council oh, yeah. bill there was not a pleasant relationship between the provincial government and municipalities during those years and we remembered social services downloading remember all the pressures on municipalities that they're still trying to overcome to this day and and so we need to we need to try to understand if there's going to be cuts. Where are those cuts coming from? Uh, I've seen people tweeting about uh, Dudley George, about uh, Kimberly Rogers, um, the poor young woman who 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 died uh, under house arrest, who was on social assistance mm-hmm. in the north. Um, people are really concerned about what a new conservative government will do. I, I think people are pretty um, comfortable with the fact that there won't be. 
uh, progress on poverty reduction, but they don't want to see us fall back the way we did uh, with the 22% yeah. social assistance cut in 1995. Yeah, there you go again. Another. I'm less concerned about the Trump comparisons. I don't think that Doug Ford is a mini Trump. He has some communication tendencies and he's a bumper sticker kind of candidate and there's that populist thing. But I'm more concerned with the cuts. It is good to find efficiencies where efficiencies are merited, but we have absolutely no idea what we just invited in to take the keys of this province. We haven't been told. It's it's that political truism. Uh, campaigning is easy. Governing is difficult. Well, they say that you campaign on poetry and you govern in prose, right? So the poetry was the bumper sticker, I guess. Um, what is the prose going to look like? What is the meat going to be? And $6 billion is a lot to try to find. And the idea of not a single job cut, well, we'll see. That reminds me of when George W. Sr. said, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. I'll be surprised if there's no cuts. Well, and Dalton McGinney signed the pledge, too, that he wasn't going to raise taxes. Right, but are vulnerable. Are, so I'm more concerned with the Mike Harris parallels than I am with any kind of Trump parallels. I think you bring up a good point, Tom. Hamilton in particular uh, is still suffering the results of those downloads from all those years ago. So are we looking for more of that? No. Yeah, and, and the comparisons, by the way, I think there was some legitimacy, too. And I, I can't speak for anybody else, but when when I would talk about that, I'm talking about the campaign style. I'm yes. not suggesting personal. I don't know Doug Ford. I don't know him personally at all. I, I'm not suggesting he has some of the foibles or, or whatever it is that Donald Trump is dealing with. But they ran a Trump-style campaign. In other words, slogans, stay away from the media, blame the media, as a yes. matter of fact, uh, for, for your problems. It's all you know, it's the world against us, guys, so we better stick together. And that was what got Donald Trump elected, and I think it's, it was a very, very strong contributing factor to get Doug Ford elected. It's, and tone is what matters here. I mean, last night I did not appreciate how Doug Ford stepped on the long-held convention, both at the that level and at the riding level, that you let the loser go first and the next loser and then the winner, right? It's, it's There's a reason for that. He stepped right on Kathleen Wynne's speech in terms of timing. Maybe that was accidental. Maybe it was just crass. I don't think that set a good tone. But what I did appreciate, and I think it's important to note for people who are afraid he's a mini Trump, when the crowd started to boo Kathleen Wynne and Andrea Horvath, he didn't say, you know, lock her up, lock her up, like the chance at the Trump rallies. What he said was, no, 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 they ran a fair race. So, I mean, there, there was some conciliatory tone last night. I think that we all need to watch the next 72 hours and see, do they take that tone and try to make this more of a conciliatory election? That's Today Possible. After, I, rem- I remember Trump being fairly gracious on his election good vic- point. night victory as well, though. So and how long did that Laura's last? Laura's absolutely right. Time will tell. The other the other element that I think we have to go in is, is don't put the, rush the panic button here right mm-hmm. now. I mean, we're concerned, and they, these are all legitimate things you're talking about, the minimum wage program, the living wage program, yeah. uh, so many other things. We don't know yet. All we know is it, 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 the reality here in politics now, and they're going to have to face this reality, is you can't find $6 billion in efficiencies without either job cuts or layoffs or selling off properties. That, those are the only three ways government can do that. And they're yeah. going to have to choose. And, and we don't know where that's going to be right now because we gave them a blank check. That's right. And if I can just make a note, Bill, because it's important to me, and we have as human beings a catastrophic bias. We think that things will be catastrophic. It's how we kind of protect ourselves. Uh, and so we had news this morning of a high-profile suicide again with Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. And then we had Kate the other day. Um, for people out there, and legitimately when I was on the Cable 14 desk, my phone was blowing up with messages of people absolutely freaking out. And I'm sure, Tom, you've seen some of it. So I think people who are listening to this who are very scared need to know that this is Ontario, it's a pragmatic province, that it's a democracy, and that there are people who are in Queen's Park and around this Premier who understand um, the need for balance and the need for moderation. So I don't want people to freak out. You know, you well, have to and, just and take, pace the, it. The, the Trump example comes into play. 
as, as dramatic and as dire as that circumstance is, mm-hmm. they're surviving. And That's we survived the, the Harris years, too. And we talked about some of the terrible things that happened and, and some of the things that got dumped onto cities and, and dumped onto the disenfranchised. But we got through that. Uh, there's, there's still some people with some scars from that. But, I mean, we do have a system mm-hmm. that can come back from that. And, 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 again, I don't think this is a mindset within that whole party. I, I'm, I'm looking at people like Christine Elliott and Carolyn Mulroney right. and some of the folks that have been around for a while. Uh, and I, I got to think that there's going to be some calmer heads that are going to be at that cabinet table. And I look at people like Sandy Shaw. I mean, I think that she will be more vocal and formidable than some of the NDP that we've had sitting in Queen's Park the last few years. No offense to uh, Miller and, and some others, but I think that we've got a different kind of NDP party that is rolling in. And there are people like Sandy Shaw who understand how important it is going to be not just to be vocal in opposition, but to be effective in opposition. And that takes more these days than just standing up and yelling during question period. Which, by the way, leads us to something else I wanted to talk to you about. And this happens anytime a government gets booted out of office uh, in the fashion that the, the liberals did last night. Uh, I, I know the hatred for Kathleen Wynne. It's palpable. Anybody has to go on social media for 10 seconds, and you can see that. And it's been that mm-hmm. way for four years now. But some good people are, are also going down with that ship. Uh, I, I think that we're pretty good representatives. Uh, and one of, well, I mean, in Burlington, for example, I mean, there's some pretty good folks here. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. Now you have to see who's going to step up. Yeah, and Kathleen Wynne owns that. I know that she gave a lovely little speech last night, and it was graceful. But she knew two years ago, based on Canadian polling that was consistent, that she was by far the most disliked premier in the country. And if she had of a year, year and a half, ago had a leadership race for somebody else, the party might not be decimated. There might actually be a liberal party that had party status this morning. So as much as her Hail Mary on Saturday might have saved a couple of those seats for a couple of those veterans, those good people, Bill, in history, the long view is going to be, you know, what on earth was she thinking? Dalton McGinty did that. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, Kathleen Wynne, history is going to record what kind of premier she was, I think. Um, And over the last year, particularly the last 18 months, we've seen some of the most progressive policies coming out of the provincial government that we've ever seen. Uh, A move from you know, $11.60 minimum wage to a $14 minimum wage and proposals to go up to 15 and then index it. We've seen massive uh, changes to structural social assistance over the last couple of months. Um, the idea of a basic income, which is being tested here in Hamilton, that was Kathleen Wynne pushing that forward. And these ideas will stick around. Uh, whether the policies stick around in the short term, we don't know. But I, I think, to her credit, uh, she brought in some very progressive ideas, and, and she should be credited for that. I agree with that on the policy. I, I, I don't disagree with that. But every politician has a best before date, right. and you've got to know that, and and you've got to be able to uh, to do something about it before the public tells you. Well, and the the reaction that I had to Saturday's announcement was it felt like hubris. If you're so unpopular. Uh, that you need to concede a week early, how can you then tell everybody how to vote? You know, obviously the province isn't interested in your view of what the province should be anymore. They don't buy into your vision. So the idea of that press conference, like I said, it might have saved a couple of jobs for them, but really she should have stepped away earlier. I agree those policies were important and maybe she stayed to fight for those, minimum wage in particular, going up to a living wage, uh, and that's great. But even some of those aren't going to come to full fruition, right? Doug Ford has said he's not going to 
to go past the $14. Yep. So, I mean, I think she might have put some of those good platform pieces at risk, those policies, by giving them such a majority. That's that's a good point. And I think progressive voters are going to have to think long and hard about, about the future as well. And whether a three-party system in Ontario still works. We know out west uh, in BC and Alberta and Saskatchewan in, in Manitoba, they tend to be two parties um, that, that vie for power. Um, will progressive voters come together the way the Unite the Right did uh, nationally here in Canada? Uh, will we have a Unite the Left movement here in Ontario? I don't know. I think time will tell. If Laura's right and um, the current conservative government has more than four years and may, may be looking at two terms possibly, that may become a very real option after the next election. I'm going to get about 30, 35 seconds here, but a quick answer from both of you. Is Kathleen Wynne going to be judged as the person that put her legacy ahead of the, the best interests of the Liberal Party? I think ultimately. I mean, look at it. It really is a catastrophic defeat. If you look at the numbers they started this election campaign with and the numbers they have now, it reminds me of Ma Rooney back in the day when he decimated the, the federal conservative party. So I think that is going to be part of her legacy. I think she, I think she had a historic opportunity to warn uh, Ontarians about the clear and present danger that Doug Ford presented. Um, she didn't do that, mm-hmm. and I think she will be blamed for it. Lots more to talk about in the days, weeks, and I guess years ahead now with the majority government. Uh, thanks so much for coming in, guys, the day after. Great to have you in here. Laura Babcock, Tom Cooper. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. So, uh, Doug Ford is in charge. He is, uh, well, the premier-elect at this stage. And uh, obviously, it's a different kind of Ontario that we're going to be looking at over the next four years. Uh, Joining us to talk about just what that might look like is Jason Roy, who is a Ph.D. associate professor in the Department of Political Science and also the director of the Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, Jason, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Hey, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Do we overreact to these things? And I, I understand that we all have concerns at time to time. And, and, and I saw a lot of stuff, I guess maybe because of some of the stuff in Common Sense Revolution, etc. But as, as one of my uh, cohorts mentioned, hey, the sun came up this morning. It's a new day. Let's just chill it a little bit. Yeah, you know, you know what? I'm uh, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic as well, Bill. I, I think, you know, one of, the, one of the things that might have been a factor in this election and the, and the outcome that we saw... Uh, in part, is the team of candidates that uh, that Ford has uh, behind behind him, uh, many of whom were elected last night, uh, and, I, and I think that mattered. We saw in the, towards the end of the campaign that Ford was starting to uh, to, to bring some of these candidates, uh, Christine Elliott, for example, or Caroline Marooney, another one, uh, to some of the different media uh, events that he was hosting, uh, and I think that was sort of a, a reminder to the, you know, hopefully to, to voters and, and uh, residents of Ontario that. Hey, look, it's not just one person. There's an entire team of potential people here that can uh, that can, that can that can be part of this as well. You know, it's interesting you brought that up, Jason, because there was I, I thought a pivotal moment in the campaign uh, where the PC started to dip a little bit, and the and the NDP went up, and and Doug Ford had that photo op uh, sitting around a big uh, horseshoe table. Uh, with him at the head, but you're right. There was Vic Fideli, there was Christine Elliott, there was Carolyn Mulroney. Uh, there were, you know, so in other words, it, it was, and the whole message there was: this is the team. Uh, it's it's not yeah. just Doug Ford, and and I don't know if that was the reason for it, but all of a sudden you saw the Tories get a little wind beneath their wings after that happened. Sure, yeah, I mean, many many saw that as there's there's a cabinet table. This is what it would look like under you know under a PC government. Uh, and I think to counter that, one of the uh, one of the issues that that might have hurt the NDP is that they, they didn't do that. They had a they had a leader who was who was by far the most popular of the of the three main uh, main party leaders uh, contesting this election, 
but they didn't present their candidates as you know. There's still that question as who will take on these major roles, who will take take, take over finance, who will look at education, health, etc. And, and that might have been problematic because the message that the PCs and the Liberals were trying to drive home in this last week of campaigning was was to prime individuals to think about you know is the NDP capable of, of, of managing this province? Uh, what would it look like under an NDP government? What, is, what, what would be the cost of having an NDP government? Are they qualified, et cetera? And, and that's important, I think, in today's uh, politics, especially because of the influence of, of social media. And, and you saw that, I'm sure, uh, Jason, with some of the postings on Facebook and on Twitter about, you know, do you want so-and-so uh, from the NDP to be your finance minister? And, and it was usually... Uh, one of those NDP candidates that was in the news for all the wrong reasons, and whether, you know, with the Nazi postings or, or the anti-Remembrance Day or anti-veterans sort of thing. That, unfortunately, because Andrew Horvath didn't step up and, and, and say much about that, I think that helped an awful lot of the opposition, especially within the PCs and Liberals, define the NDP. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure it did. I mean, and it's not to say, I mean, there's a number of, of things that came out as well with the PC and Ford in particular in the, in the past couple of weeks, uh, but it seemed to, in the, in the case of the NDP, it just seemed to, emphasize or reinforce what might have been for a lot of people some, some pre-existing ideas about what, what the NDP represented, what the candidates, uh, you know, the ideology, the, the, the experience, etc. And, and I, think, I, think, I think you're right. I think that certainly caused people to pause. And as we can see from the results uh, this morning, well, in fact, very early on last night, uh, they, they, they made a, a, a concrete decision and, and it went, to, went towards the PC for sure. There's another f- a phenomenon, I, I, maybe a, that's the, the correct characterization of this, and I was talking to uh, David Aiken from Global News last night and Richard Brennan, who's covered politics for like 8,000 years uh, uh, for you know in Queen's Park and everything else. And, and so, seriously, they were both saying in all their years in politics, uh, they had never seen anybody running for public office at this level with such a... a, a well, a non-platform, really. I mean, there was so little to the platform and so little in the way of detail, but the voters seemed to give them a pass on it. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think I think voters made a decision some time ago that this is going to be a change election. I think uh, for any number of reasons, uh, the Liberal Party just just wasn't going to win this election. Uh, that was evident from from you know a, a year ago almost. If you look at the, some of the numbers that we were getting, um, the, the question then becomes: is, is you know what are the two options? And, and in some ways, I mean, some, some are, are writing today looking at Ford. I mean, perhaps his, his lack of, of detail was, in fact, what won the election for them. I mean, some simple solutions that, as, uh, you know, that, that, that many questions could, could ever come, come forward. I mean, I'm not sure that we're going to have a dollar beer in the corner store next week. Um, but, you know, certainly seem like simple, reasonable, even if you don't believe it. And maybe, maybe ultimately that's what people decided is that uh, let's give it a go and, and see what happens. Uh, there's a criticism. I wanted you to get a comment on this, if I could, Jason, but, uh, about the Liberals. And I heard it last night from a couple of different observers. Uh, and I guess hindsight's always twenty twenty after a, the votes are being counted. Uh, but they, they said, like, it, it seemed as if the Wynn government spent way too much time and probably too much money uh, on the 905. And, and not just during the campaign, but over the last two or three years. Uh, you know, transit systems, all that sort of stuff. And, and t- they say to the detriment of the rest of the province, and we saw that uh, that last night, uh, the pushback on that from an awful lot of people that just felt as if they were disenfranchised. Yeah, but I mean, the 905 is what wins the election. I mean, sure. I certainly understand why they'd want to, uh, why they want to be investing in that area. I mean, certainly trying to encourage uh, votes and voters, uh, it, it just didn't go their way. I mean, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the map this morning, uh, you know, where, where different parties have, have won, I mean, it is a sea of blue in that 905 region. Um, you know, being a Kitchener Center, Waterloo, and, and parts of Hamilton seems to be these small little orange islands and, and Guelph, that little green, and again, covered in the sea of blue. 
What about that green seat? Let's talk about Mike Schreiner for just a second. Uh, the Greens have had a presence here uh, provincially. I mean, they've they've scored enough of the popular vote uh, in the last election, obviously, to, to engender the, the provincial funding that was due to them. Uh, but they've stepped it up to the next level. Some people are saying this is a foot in the door. I'm not so sure if that's the case. Uh, I think Guelph might be a bit of an anomaly, but it's an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting add-on to the legislature to have Mike Schreiner sitting in there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if it were going to happen, this this is the time. You, you don't have an incumbent running in that, uh, you, you know, in, in that riding. Uh, you certainly have the population base uh, that would that would be supportive of some of the green policies, and you have the leader of the uh, provincial party uh, contesting the election who has uh, you know experience and respect. Um, you know, if it was going to happen, I think that was it. Uh, you know, uh, and then then now we can see whether or not that that leads to continued representation, uh, or whether this is just an anomaly for this, you know, what people are calling this change election. I don't want to look four years down the road uh, too far, but I mean, I, I would wonder if this validates uh, Schreiner's presence in the leadership debates. I mean, he does have a house in the legislature, and they said that was one of the qualifications. Sure, yeah. No, I, I, I think, it, I think it, it certainly could. The argument can no longer be made that, well, if you don't have a seat, you can't be part of the debate. Uh, this has changed. So absolutely, on that, on that point, yes, he, uh, he, he should certainly be part of it. What, what happens going forward? Uh, there's a concern here uh, about, you know, and we talked about the lack of platform here, but where, what are they going to do? I mean, one of the consistent things that Mr. Ford said through the campaign was finding $6 billion in efficiencies. Uh, and lowering taxes, and and that seems rather incongruous to people that have been in politics. Is uh, you you can't bring in less money and then try to find efficiencies and offer tax cuts. That that there's going to have to be some cutting someplace. And they say, oh no 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 no, that's it. Uh, give me give me your read on that as as how practical that really is. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think at this point it's gonna it's gonna be some uh, some some assessment time uh, after 15 years in power with a single party. Uh, you know, it's gonna require some some serious analysis of, of what is the actual situation, where are the different uh, you know different budget lines, um, you know, what is the actual situation, the state of the, of the province. Uh, based on that, then you can uh, then you can start to assess what are the priorities and what can you can you and can you not do. Uh, you know, there may be certainly some promises that were made that uh, the realities of, of once you recognize the full situation, uh, you're constrained. You, you simply can't do this. So whether there's tax cuts, whether, uh, you know, the, the 10 cent per liter of fuel, uh, whether we see cuts to our hydro bills, all of these things. I mean, certainly they were, uh, you know, they were stated repeatedly throughout the campaign. Um, but whether or not, uh, and even whether or not voters fully believe that this is exactly what's going to happen in the, in the coming uh, months as, as, as PCs take over, um, you know, I question that. I think people are, are uh, you know, perhaps not completely sold on this, but they get it. At least they're going to try. They're saying they're going to try to do something. Whether or not they can follow through with that, well, that will remain to be seen. I get, I get the same sense. I think you're bang on with that. It's, it's not as if they're saying, okay, Ford, you're shot. you got two weeks to fix the hydro system here. Right. Uh, it's just they realized, hey, these other guys have had it for 15 years, and they haven't done anything to help us. Uh, get them out of there. Let's give somebody else a kick at the can. Yeah, I mean, it may be one of the, you know, it can't get any worse kind of a, kind of approach to this, and, uh, and then let's hope we're right. What's uh, what's the impact going to be federally? Uh, and, and I mean, there are some obvious areas to this. I mean, Ford was obviously campaigning very strongly against a carbon tax, which is uh, one of the mantras of, of the Trudeau government at this stage. And, and so there's going to be some butting of heads. I mean, the, when the Ontario Premier is going head-to-head with the Prime Minister, that always makes news. I know Jason Kenney is just uh, you know rubbing his hands with glee right now because he's got an ally in that battle. But there's a federal election next year. Uh, is is this a harbinger of things to come? Are, are people in Ottawa from all three parties looking at Ontario and saying, "Whoa, we got we got to learn from this"? 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, perhaps. It's certainly not going to make things easier for Trudeau and the, and the federal liberals. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not, I'm not sure that the underlying uh, shift that we've seen here is, is, is a reflection of an ideological shift or what have you. I mean, it, 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 it indeed is a, uh, as many as, uh, you know, for many people, it's a vote against a, a party as much as it is a vote for a party. Whether or not that carries over to the federal election, uh, you know, it remains to be seen, but there is no question that the that the policies and the positions of the uh, the, of the new Ontario uh, provincial government is uh, certainly in contrast to the, uh, the the policies and the efforts of the, the federal government. And that that could lead to some interesting dynamics, uh, whether or not that plays out in the 2019 federal election in terms of a a vote against uh, the the federal uh, Liberal Party uh, or a vote in favor of the federal Conservative Party. Uh, again, we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, in, in, in many instances, we used to have a situation where, uh, whether it was coordinated or not, uh, provinces and uh, voted different parties and at the provincial level uh, than they had at the federal level to try to balance. Uh, mm-hmm. those. So whether or not we see that again in the 2019 election, we'll, we'll certainly have to wait to see. Well, obviously, after 15 years of liberal rule, especially the last uh, five with Kathleen Wynne, where we were certainly drifting to to the left of center, uh, we know there's going to be a right turn here with this government, Jason. I guess the question is, how hard is the right going to be? Well, I, I don't know how far they can they can turn. I mean, there, there, there's there's constraints in, in government. I mean, uh, you know, election promises and, and some of the policies certainly are going to move or, or shift in that direction. But whether or not we can go to from you know from one one side of the spectrum completely over to the uh, the opposite end, I, I just don't know that that's possible. Uh, and, and I think that's because of these you know incremental changes that you can see. Um, you know, we're not going to be ripping up windmills, for example, uh, next week, uh, and, and dropping taxes and all of these other things. Uh, this is going to take some time, so so I don't know if the, if the change is going to be as um, as, as as severe as, as many might might fear. Uh, likely, we we could see progressively over time, perhaps shifting towards the right. Uh, but I don't think we're going to be able to see such a, a quick, blunt shift in policy. Well, because you're, you're faced with reality. That's that old phrase, isn't it? That, that exactly. uh, you know, yeah. that campaigning is easy, governing is hard. Yeah. Uh, and we yeah. saw that during the first leadership debate way back when, when when uh, Tanya Granick Allen actually suggested ripping up the windmills, and, yeah. and Doug Ford said that's a great idea. And you know, getting into and it was Christine Elliott that was the calming voice said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! There are implications to that legal implications." Sure. And and you know that there are going to be lawyers that are going to say, "Well, Mr. Premier, uh, let me tell you why you can't do that." And and so sure. uh, I guess that that's that's the dose of reality that comes in for anybody who's going to govern. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the idea is you're going to you know, completely wipe out the, uh, the, the, you know, the executive board of Hydro One, for example. I mean, th- these are things that certainly during the campaign, it makes the point as to what your position is on these issues, whether or not you can actually follow through with that now that you have uh, won the election is, 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 again, constrained, as you suggest, by reality. Well, and that's that's one of the interesting arguments. I mean, I, I've heard somebody talk over the last 18 hours or so about what this government might do. Uh, and the reality is, no matter who takes office, uh, the, invariably the story about three months later is what they're not going to do or haven't done. Uh, you remember Jean Chrétien campaigned, I'm going to get rid of the GST, and he got reelected and said, yeah, well, uh, I don't think we're going to do that. That's a bad idea. Pierre Trudeau said, wage and price controls, terrible idea. We'd never do that. Guess what he instituted? Stephen Harper said, I'm never going to touch income trusts, and he did. Uh, so I guess we have to wait for the other shoe to drop here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's numerous examples in history that, uh, that that what you suggest during a campaign and what you actually can follow through on is is not necessarily a match. Uh, and I think we're we're likely to see much of that. And again, I mean, the, 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 what we've been hearing largely is from the leader Doug Ford, who, who presents a different type of politics, uh, arguably a different type of politician than what we've been accustomed to. But then there is that team of uh, you know of, of others behind him. 
Um, in this case, there's 75 others, for example, who, uh, who will be sitting that, uh, that may have a different voice and different perspectives. We prided ourselves as, as Canadians and I guess as Ontarians for, for the, the future, I guess, I, I don't know, but at least in the past, as middle of the rotors. Uh, you know, we don't want extreme left, we don't want extreme right. Are we still there? We just seem to be going from exactly what we didn't want to do a couple of generations ago. We seem to, to go from one extreme to the other. And I, I know we always want middle ground, but nobody's really offering it now, and we don't seem to want it now. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question, and it's certainly something in, in, in terms of the academic literature that, and studies that we're engaged in. Uh, typically, you want to take that middle position because that's where you find the majority of voters. But what we have seen is these, you know, I hate to call it divisive politics, but certainly parties that tend to be falling further on one end of the spectrum of the other and offering voters somewhat, you know, distinct choices. Uh, you know, arguably the NDP and the Liberals were, were quite close. There's very little difference between the policy options and with, with a few exceptions, uh, which, you know, which maybe gave the PCs more option uh, to, to sort of win over some of that middle ground, pull them perhaps slightly to the right. Uh, we're also seeing, I think, in Ontario, especially this, this fairly uh, large divide when you start looking at suburban and rural and urban uh, residents and, and, and their preferences. I mean, you see that in the vote distribution as well. Um, so, you know, so, so whether or not this is a sign of what's to come, whether or not Canadians are going to move, shift back to that middle, uh, you know, again, this, this moving forward, we'll have to see how this plays out. Um, you know, and, and in part, it may be, uh, it may be a reflection of what policies the PCs are able to implement, what they, they do pursue uh, during their mandate. Because at one point they were actually moving that way. I mean, when Patrick Brown was running the party, the People's Guarantee was de facto middle-of-the-road policy. It was a Bill Davis conservative policy. Obviously, they got turfed with everything that happened with Patrick Brown, and, and there was a conscious decision to move a lot more to the right, which obviously was successful. So maybe that is a harbinger of things to come. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument. Those those on the right end of the spectrum, uh, you know, approximately about 30 to 35 percent of the population, they're going to vote PC because there is no other party. There's no other option for them. It's that center group. Which way do you pull them? Can you pull them to the left? Can you pull them to the right? And and with, with Brown's approach, I think that was an effort to try to move closer to the center, to try to pick up that extra 5 to 10 percent of the vote uh, that would give them the majority government. That that appears to be what uh, what the PCs have done is pulling in a, uh, you know, just over 40 percent of, of, uh, of, of those who voted. Uh, so you know, maybe that was a decision that it might have been a little bit farther to the right than they would have liked to have gone, but given the other option, that's, that's where voters ended up uh, casting their ballot. Fascinating stuff, and boy, lots more analysis to come in the days and years ahead, I guess. Now, Jason, thanks as always. Great talking with you today. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Jason Roy, of course, uh, assistant professor at uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The G7, which is uh, actually started yesterday, but officially gets underway today with uh, the, some of the meetings with some of the higher-ups. And uh, moments ago, uh, Air Force One landed in Quebec, and uh, President Trump uh, has deplaned, and he is on his way to the G7 conference, uh, which is going to be a rather interesting meeting, uh, given some of the uh, back and forth that's gone on between Prime Minister Trudeau and the President and uh, President Macron from France in the last 24 hours. I talk about a Twitter war. So what's going to happen? What's the result? Uh, let's talk to uh, John Higginbotham about that, Senior Distinguished Fellow, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. John, thank you so much for the time, uh, for taking some time for us today. Appreciate it. Uh, delighted to be here. Uh, aside from, from the protest, we'll set that aside for a second, which are obviously part of these protests of G7s, but they tend to often in the past have been rather benign events. Not a whole lot gets accomplished. There's usually a uh, a, a thing that comes out at the end that they all sign, and you know we're going to promise to do this. They've taken on a different tone since Donald Trump has been a member. That's right. It's a completely different mood. 
usually they're uninteresting in a way because so much work has gone on at the official level Mm -hmm. and at the ministerial level below them to ensure that the 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 seven leaders appear united on on key issues it may seem boring from the outside but from the inside it's really the the pinnacle of diplomacy for those seven countries but trump has changed everything well, the tweets, and I'm sure you've seen them, John, and I mean, they've they've obviously been in the news uh, for the last 24 hours. Uh, Trump uh, tweeted yesterday, our Prime Minister Trudeau is being so indignant bringing up the relationship between the U.S. and Canada has had over the years and all sorts of other things, but he doesn't bring up the fact that they charge up to 300% on dairy, hurting our farmers, killing our agriculture, and on and on it goes. Uh, the indignance and, and the comments. Uh, that doesn't sound like detente. Uh, so what, what's what's going to happen when they have this face-to-face meeting, which is actually going to be, I guess, just an hour or so from now? Well, he's uh, he's not going to give in to the pressure of these uh, other six uh, countries. He's made that very clear. And anybody who's followed his career and his personality and the positions he's taken with the other countries shows that he is, he welcomes this kind of fight with his uh, with his colleagues because it shows <clears throat> to his base that he's fighting for to to make America great again. He's he's defined this battle, hasn't he? Oh, he has. It's it, and he's made himself the center of the news. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like the idea that he's going to be that he has to listen to six people, uh, and he likes dealing with people one on one. Uh, the Japanese Prime Minister uh, visited with him uh, yesterday in Washington, and the Japanese were extremely obsequious, I would say, uh, because of the requirement to get along with Trump. Uh, we have a little more uh, room for maneuver in Canada and France and other places, uh, but uh, the, d- the danger is that he means what he says. He's, if you pull apart the summit you really pull apart the mechanism of multilateral cooperation underneath it. But he's, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, that the, the Abe's concern here, obviously, is that Trump's heading over to the uh, to the Korean summit just after this, and Japan obviously has a vested interest in this, so they, I guess they, they're trying to curry favor with the president at this Absolutely. stage. Absolutely. It was the Abe and Trump uh, Friendship Society in terms of the uh, press conference he gave to them. And you won't get anything like that out of the uh, Quebec summit. Let's let's talk about that relationship if we could, John, because it seems as if the strategy uh, from Ottawa, uh, since Trump has become president, uh, was to to ignore the bombast uh, and just c- kind of keep your head down and let's try to you know get things done that need to be done. Uh, I, I'm sensing there's been a change in attitude in the last uh, seven or ten days, uh, and obviously the catalyst for that would have been the steel tariffs and the aluminum tariffs that have been announced. And, and Ottawa seems to have taken a much different and a more aggressive tack towards Trump. Well, it's taken a more aggressive line in terms of its rhetoric and its uh, appearance of standing up and battling with Trump. But remember, the U.S. economy is ten times larger than Canada's. Uh, there's an there's an illusion of equality between the two, and what might be, and also that uh, the tariffs we're putting on the United States they may have some influence on Congress and some pressure on Trump, but all of them will reduce in will 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 uh, result in uh, cheaper in in cheaper uh, imports of uh, 
uh, to the United, uh, United States and cheaper imports into Canada uh, because of higher prices. Um, it's really going to be a, uh, this is a trade war. There's no way of it limiting the damage, both the uh, import measures we take and the uh, reduction of our exports to the United States are going to damage Canadians more than they're going to damage the United States. It's really unfortunate that we did not realize how much he meant these meant to be tough on these things, and uh, quite frankly, could have done a deal on dairy or on uh, on a, a more distinct. Uh, uh, reference to Canadian interests as opposed to Canadian and Mexican interests. But it's, it's interesting, and you're absolutely right. I mean, Canada, in, in a singular trade war against the United States, is certainly a David and Goliath scenario uh, without the same ending uh, that David had in that. That's, that's perfectly right. And, I mean, the government is, is it's, it's puffing out its manly chest and, uh, uh, and promising this and promising that. But... Uh, the risk is that the government will believe its own propaganda and and start believing that that is the real balance of power. It's not the real balance of power. Uh, if we have a trade war with the United States, we are going to be the big losers. And by already we have lost our sort of exceptional status as closest friend of the United States uh, to be defended against uh, the, the measures they're taking against other countries. Yeah, apparently we're a security threat to them now, which is a, a rather bizarre circumstance and, and way of phrasing it. But what about, what about the fact that, at least at this meeting anyway, John, uh, somebody seems to have Canada's back. I mean, because Trudeau's not fighting this battle alone. I mean, Macron, uh, Merkel, uh, May, I mean, there's, there's people lining up behind him who are just as ticked off at Trump. Uh, is, is, there, is there strength in unity here? Well, I... At least for 24 hours? <laughs> We'll we'll see we'll see uh, because uh, I'm sure the prime minister doesn't see them as backing him because each of those other people have their own specific uh, problems and issues with uh, with Trump. Uh, they can easily be divided, and uh, and uh, Trump seems on a on a trajectory that is going to really undermine uh, the kind of unity that we've seen in the past. From these summits, they disagree on climate change. Uh, they disagree on how to handle Iran. Now they are having a, a real bloody fight over uh, over uh, steel, uh, aluminum, uh, possibly cars if that comes up, which will just devastate the Canadian uh, automobile industry. It's a ve- it's a very risky period, and uh, uh, this is very poor. Very bad news for Canada because Canada relies on international investment, and this uh, adds to the adds to the disadvantages of uh, of investing in Canada as a kind of in, unpredictable uh, market. You're absolutely right. I mean, they all have their own agenda, but the common enemy here, at this at least for those people right now, is Trump because he's the he's the cause of of their angst at this stage. Right. That's um, why he doesn't want to 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 gang up on them. I mean, he has. Poor relations with Merkel, poor relations with Britain. Uh, he said that he would like, unbelievably, he said he'd like Putin back at the summit. Yeah, that was Putin. the first thing he said with his media conference this morning. He wants the yeah, Russia back I mean, in the that, G7. That, that is astonishing because the, 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 the advantage of the original G7 
and then the odd years when Putin, when the Russians were a member, was that these are all industrial democracies. So they, 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 that's why it was seen as the kind of holy of holies of the international system. But when that idea that uh, uh, there are more common values and more common interests uh, among them than issues that divide them, uh, that is really a, 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 a very unfortunate uh, turn of events because that will color relations in all areas. He said it as well when he said he preferred to deal with Mexico and Canada separately. Yeah. That, that wheel and hub model is, uh, of course designed for the Americans to use their uh, massive power uh, against uh, countries who are divided. Of course, we will try, you know, uh, the the sensible solution is to not get emotional about it and try to convince uh, Trump that he is is working against his own best interests, and each country will will try to make that case, both collectively and individually. But... uh, the outcome is far from certain. I guess the overriding question, especially given the confrontational attitude that the, the president seems to be taking into this with some of his tweets, and, and you're right, he did double down on it, uh, John, with another tweet. American jobs are on the line because of uh, his actions, meaning Trudeau, and because of his administration. Uh, that That's not, as we mentioned, the, the sort of hands across the aisle sort of attitude to try yeah, to create those relationships. I have not heard that one. No, no, that's, uh, but that's, that's typical. He needs an enemy to attack. Uh, maybe some of the fundamental differences of view between uh, the progressive liberal administration in Canada and his own administration are coming up over things like uh, climate change and uh, and trade. And uh, um, the problem is that these things may start to infect absolutely fundamental defense relationships. Well, which like, you're right. Canada, I mean, because we can't talk about the G7 without bringing NATO into the conversation. Uh, because of the similarities. And and I guess the overriding question for both of those organizations right now is is you're absolutely right. This is, as you say, a coming together of, of all these like-minded uh, in, countries. But America's the big dog there. We all know that. Uh, how relevant are, are these and how effective are, are is both the G7 and NATO with the U.S. basically almost standing on the sidelines? Well, it hasn't affected NATO so far. It's no, but he made noises like that at the last meeting, that, you know, yeah. you guys have got to pay more or we're out of Abs- here. Absolutely, but I, I don't think it's fundamentally changed. But but that signal on Putin being welcome, uh, given the very strong feelings in Europe over over Crimea and over, uh, over the uh, Russia murdering this, uh, this, uh, this former agent in London, uh, means it's going to the heart of the kind of idea of common values. And uh, the point of the summits was that only in the leaders do you get somebody who combines the domestic and the foreign and who combines the economic and the military. You have That's why there's nobody to appeal to if it doesn't work. That's why it'll be, a, it'll be very unfortunate if it's seen as being weakened. It has a you know, a great deal of momentum. There's all kinds of people are fussing away on a communique and uh, uh, ministers meet. And uh, I'm sure Canada will claim that we're advancing our progressive agenda on oceans and environment and so forth. But the big news is 
is this uh, collapse of unity among the uh, advanced industrial countries. And, and of course, obviously, the underscoring of, of the tariff uh, situation, which is not going to get resolved. I mean, obviously, as, as you mentioned, the, the president seems to have dug his heels in on this, and I, I don't see a whole lot of flexibility there. No, uh, absolutely. And if this starts to have some effect, uh, C.D. Howe Institute has just done a, a study of the effect of those tariffs on, on Canada. They're quite complicated, uh, and particularly if there is retaliation, but the net effect is that Canada is the loser. Well, uh, you've got to know that there's some nervous people right here in Hamilton because of the steel industry and related industries. Uh, the number that I saw earlier this week, John, was I know that there's not as many people making steel as there used to be, but there's more steel production uh, than ever before. But there's about 30,000 people in this community right now that are either in steel or related industries. And, and you've got to figure they're getting a little nervous about what's going on here. Well, somebody's he's clearly rocking the boat and uh the elephant is l- rolling over and uh and the mice are had better had better uh watch themselves uh, it's it's really uh it's certainly i've never seen i've been working on summits for 20 or 30 years i've never seen anything quite like this probably if i had paid more attention to what was happening last year with Merkel and uh, burden sharing and sort of things like that, I would have been more concerned. But um, in this case, it goes directly to Canada's bread and butter and goes deeper into the relationship than just a kind of ideological lecturing on uh, on defense expenditure. But isn't that, John, because he's he's actually, uh, he's starting to enact some of the things he's talked about. I think some of the things he's been talking about since he took office, a lot of people just put down to, well, that's just bluster. That's just Trump being Trump. Oh, he's, not, he's never really going to do that. And now he's done yeah. it. That's absolutely certain. For example, uh, I was in Washington a few weeks ago and uh, was met some of the people who are implementing his uh, environmental agenda, and he is dismantling everything that Obama did, because Obama worked largely by executive order. Mm-hmm. So, but so uh, in the Department of the Interior, in the EPA, in uh, in the Energy Department. Everywhere there's uh, there's uh, backing off major environmental uh, goals. You know this is another. You know Canada's been able to to go its own course in these areas, but uh, uh, I would expect that we're going to have to eventually take into account the, the 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 changes in the competitive atmosphere that the United States is introducing, and. Perhaps one of the first signs of that will be what uh, what Ford does in respect of uh, of climate change and carbon taxes and environmental regulations in Ontario. That changes the whole Canadian national balance on a critical goal for the Trudeau government. Absolutely, and in a pending election in Alberta too, with Jason Kenney in the wings, uh, it's a changing landscape to be sure. John, I really do appreciate the time. It's a, a very uh, a crazy time in politics right now, and a very changeable time right now. And I really appreciate your perspective. Thanks for this today. Yeah. Okay. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Bye. Take care, John Higginbottom from uh, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.